This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor about his latest book, Gurdjieff and Kundabuffer, Food for the Moon. Bloor writes, The idea that mankind is food for the moon seems, when you first encounter the idea, to be ridiculous. Nevertheless, it may well be so. To understand this theory, one needs, on the one hand, to examine it from a scientific perspective, and on the other, to study Beelzebub's tales deeply to uncover what Gurdjieff says about it, and also what he relates about the implanting of the organ Kundabuffer in man, and the subsequent consequences of its remarkable properties. Robin was born in 1951 in Liverpool. He obtained a B.S. in mathematics at Nottingham University and took up a career in the computer industry, initially writing software. From 1989 onwards, he became a technology analyst and consultant. He has thus been a writer of a kind ever since. In 2002, he was awarded an honorary Ph.D. in computer science by Wolverhampton University in the U.K. He currently resides in and works from Austin, Texas. In 1988, Bloor met and became a pupil of Rena Hands. Rena was a one-time associate of J.G. Bennett, a student of Peter Ospensky's, and later a pupil of George Gurdjieff. Following Gurdjieff's death, she remained a part of J.G. Bennett's group for a while. Subsequently, she formed groups both in London, where she lived, and in Bradford in the north of England, initially in conjunction with Madame Knott. She was an accomplished movement teacher and an inspirational group leader. She died in 1994 and is buried next to Jane Heap in a cemetery in North London. Robin leads a regular group, the Austin Gurdjieff Society in Austin, Texas. He produces a monthly newsletter, The Lost Herald, and runs the website to fathom the gist. He also organizes multiple online study groups to study Gurdjieff's writings and Gurdjieff's objective science. Robin has written or edited nine books about the work, including the To Fathom the Gifts series and Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume 1, The Ray of Creation. Robin Bloor, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back again. It's been quite a while. Yeah, I think the last time we had you on the show, we were talking about uh, the Gurdjieff's Hydrogens. That was, uh, you had just published that book and uh, had a nice conversation on that. So uh, maybe you can catch us up between then and now, how your work has been proceeding, how the Austin Gurdjieff Society is going. And I know you've been doing a lot of uh, online training and teaching courses as well, and uh, and also uh, editing a number of books. So Catch us up before we jump into the subject of today's conversation. Well, okay. Um, I, I think the Gurdjieff Hydrogen's publication um, had its own, let's say, momentum. Um, because nobody had made, um, I mean, it depends on how you read it and how closely you read it, but nobody had made the link between the electric universe, which, of course, is a, is a fringe movement in science at the moment and the Gurdjieff work. And I think that fascinated a lot of people. Um, I did um, 
uh, a series of lectures at the time on Gurdjieff's hydrogens, 20 lectures. And since then, um, I've been running study groups. I mean, I've been running tail study groups, three different study groups for years now. Uh, And they continue... Although there are a number of really interesting things that are being discovered from those um, uh, from those study groups, um, I still run the Austrian Gurdjieff Society, um, which uh, after COVID became partly in person and partly online for obvious reasons. And then having acquired some distant people who wanted to be a part of that, of course, it has to proceed online. <clears throat> or partly online. Then um, we we published a book called Sayings from the Gurdjieff Work, which was, I just happened to have a lot of sayings lying around from various people. So I published that. And that was, uh, um, I think it was last year. And... Um, then I did some publishing work for Terry Tone in Norway, his book on Rodney Collin, excellent book, uh, and also for Nella Liska, one of the best movements teachers in North America, uh, had, had written a book and we published both of that. So I kind of became involved doing not really, we don't really market those books, but you actually have to put all the details yeah. of those places and, include them in the list of things people can buy if they want to. So that's been going on. Uh, but then it, the the thing about um, the Gurdjieff and Conda buffer was that a number of um, issues, I think, had, had arisen in terms of the tail study uh, and also in terms of how people understand the idea that... Um, uh, mankind and actually nature feeds the moon uh, and it seemed to me to be a good idea to take some of the information out of uh, Gideon's hydrogen and marry it with a lot of information out of um, Beelzebub's tales uh, and and provide what I think is at least a way of understanding um, all of that idea about feeding the moon yeah, so so um, the book is Gurdjieff and Kunda Buffer, Food for the Moon, and um, uh, fairly recently uh, published. I I think one of the questions I had, uh, and this is based off of some earlier conversations we had with you uh, about the Fathom the Gist series, is that I think you had said that as as you put forward a, a way of reading Gurdjieff's. Uh, uh, Beelzebub's tales to his grandson that you still found that it's 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 hard for people to start to put that methodology into practice and so some of your later I think volume three gave some examples of how to do that it felt like in part that this uh, uh, Gurdjieff and Kunda buffer was in that spirit of trying to not say too much but also to say enough that people start to feel the momentum of how they can actually access Gurdjieff's material. Is that a fair um, interpretation? Well, it's a fair interpretation. I mean, there are nuances that one probably has to add. There are various things that um, weren't known um, generally uh, about 
um, in the tales about the role of the angels, who the angels actually are, what they do. And, um, uh, and writing the book was partly to just put that out there because I was sick of um, not telling people. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, when I'm, you know, as part of Rena Hand's group, there is things, there was a kind of secretiveness that um, uh, pervaded the work. And um, there were guys like C.S. Knott who said, you know, if you, if you come to understand stuff in the tales, you shouldn't tell anybody and rob them of having the revelation. But the reality out there was, first of all, hardly anybody reads the book. And secondly, those people that read it are lost. You know, they're adrift. I mean, it doesn't apply to everybody. It applies to most people. I only know, knew a few guys, like Keith Puzzell was a good example, uh, of people that had some um, deep familiarity with that book. Everybody else, it was just too hard. Mm-hmm. And so that's that, that leads me to um, make the observation that it seems to me that what you've done with the book, especially the last, the last uh, uh, quarter of it, if not more, is to frame an overarching narrative of what Gurdjieff was presenting in the book in a way that I haven't quite seen before. And I think that's, um, uh, it's, it's as if you, uh, were doing, and I I don't mean to be, uh, um, uh, uh, to sound critical at all. It's sort of like a cliff's notes of the overall arc uh, of the book in a, in a, it's not a. It's not a. Um, what would you call it? It's. It's not too brief because you touch on a lot of the central elements and characteristics and features of the of uh, uh, the tales. But um, I just haven't seen it put together in quite that way before. I don't know if if you um, had that impression that that that's part of what you were doing with with this. Admittedly, it's 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 a pretty slim volume. You know, it's it's only 179 pages, right? And and not all of it is what I'm what I'm uh, describing was my impression from reading the last part of the book. The earlier part of the book has a lot of the material that would be um, part of the Gurdjieff hydrogen material in terms of the electric universe and and whatnot. But um, but nevertheless, it, it was like to me, it, it, it was as if you were doing this in some at some points quite um, quite articulately, kind of creating a narrative that impl- that is implicit in the tales, but but offering it in a way that people who, as you just said are uh, either intimidated by the book, by the tales, or are intimidated by the language in the, in the tales, et cetera. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm wondering if you, if you framed it to yourself in any way that resembles what, what the impression I'm, I'm just describing is. Well, there are a number of people, I mean, like three or four, who read the book uh, and said to me that they wished 
that they had done what I do at the end of the book, which is to uh, aggregate together everything about Condor Buffer that you'll find. Mm-hmm. Um, and to aggravate together, I mean, that was what they wanted. Those are what those people mentioned, but I did another aggregation, which was the things that um, mankind did to themselves mm-hmm. um, that weren't dependent on Condor uh, Buffer. And that was the idea after explaining uh, a Condor Buffer narrative, let's call it a Condor Buffer narrative. Uh, in respect of the moon, that was the idea of the book was to to mm-hmm. aggregate those things because it it's really difficult to go through the book and actually pull out every time the word condor buffer is mentioned and what is uh, assigned to it um, so in a sense it it is a bit like um let's say to fathom the just volume three in the sense of um making it easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that. And um, my intention always in, in the end was, I know it's Cliff Notes is possibly um, not entirely accurate, but it was to provide notes to people. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, I... I... I, I didn't mean to be uh, 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 critical in that comment, but but people people understand that that phrase as as a way to understand a book that they might not otherwise uh, fully grasp. Yeah, I think one one um, observation I have is years ago I wrote a um, a paper that uh, I think actually was read at the, one of the All and Everything conferences on the organ Kunda buffer. And, and to do that, I I did in some ways something similar uh, to uh, what you did in a much bigger way with this book. I mean, I went through all and everything and I went, I found all the references to the Kunda buffer. I didn't have an electronic index at the time. I think I was using one of the published indices. And one of the things I find about uh, the tales is it's a little bit like a hologram. I mean, it's like, uh, um, or maybe a better analogy would be, uh, 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 you know, the RAID disks or something where you you, you uh, put data in a lot of different places and redundant forms across a number of different sectors. And in order to actually, when you pull it out and you pull all those sections out, there's a coherent, there's a coherent thought that you can grab. But if you're reading the book and your attention span is not long enough, it just feels confusing. And and so that's one of the interesting things about the tales in general. But I had the feel in the book that when you put when you pull everything, you you pull all these comments of Kunda buffer uh, and other elements and related topics together, and you just read Gurdjieff's words, which you quote liberally to the book, it feels like a very consistent, coherent uh, um, explication of. Uh, an aspect of our natural functioning. Well, I think that's fair. There's, I mean, there, there are a number of things. I mean, one of the things that, that we have discovered recently, which came out of the Meetings Remarkable Men study group that we did last year, or finished it, we finished it this year, but we began it last year, is that there are a, a large number of links between the um, 
meetings remarkable men and the tales, and nobody notices them. Mm. And um, among those links, I'll just throw them out because they're kind of interesting. Um, uh, Pagosian, Captain X, as he's also referred to. Was it Mr. X? Can't remember. Um, Pagosian is the captain of the ship Connor. Mm-hmm. Right. And the the um, demonstration of that is when you read about the captain of the ship Karnak, you realise that his origin is described exactly like Pagosian's origin is described in terms of his um, uh, his upbringing and the intention for him that his parents had for him. It's the same. And Dean Borsch is um, Beelzebub's first tutor who lives on Descaldino. He's the same person. Mm. You know, and there are lots more crossovers than that, but that's just to mention a couple. I'm currently writing, or it'll probably take a long time, I'm currently writing a complete set of notes for Meetings Remarkable Men, and that'll be actually more like Cliff Notes, except... The, the, you know, the the things that people don't do, you would never expect a normal reader to do. I see. You know, and you would never expect a normal reader to do it for a number of reasons. Is that when you're um, reading a book, you don't see something uh, and spend a lot of time um thinking about it and researching it. There's this conversation between Dean Borsch and Gidget's father where um, they're talking in in a particular style. And one of them says, where is God now? And the other one says, um, God is in Surrey Kamish making ladders for people to go up and down. And um, from heaven. So the question is, what is Sari Kamish? Does anybody look that up? Because when you look it up, you discover that Sari Kamish is uh, the site of one of the major battles of the First World War between the Turks and the Russians, hmm. where the Turks got slaughtered, and that in Turkey, there are monuments set up around the country to the Battle of Sari Kamish. Hmm. And as a European reader, you would have no idea of that. Hmm. You know, and Gidget's thrown that in. He's obviously inventing the conversation, but he's just thrown that in. And the question is, well, if that's the case with that location, uh, and um, there are lots of other locations, and the question is, you know, what is the background to all of the things he mentions? Um, and that was something that started to emerge when we did the Meetings with Remarkable Men study, is, is that the, it, it, there, were, there were certain things that overlapped between um, the two books that you can't have made coincidental. So you can't have... Yeah, it can't have randomly put there. So 
you have at the beginning of the second volume of Beelzebub's Tales, you have this um, uh, discussion of the Romans and the Greeks. And in um, Meetings Remarkable Men, he has, um, in the chapter on Yellow, he has talks about this stall that was run um, by, I think it's run by an Italian, or by Italians that's selling alabaster figures. And they're being made by a Greek who has the, if you like, the um, uh, secret to how to make them effectively. And they're selling quasi-religious figures. And you look at that and you think, oh, well, that was something that people mostly never picked up in the tales at all. But when he was talking about the Romans and the Greeks, he was talking about the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. He wasn't talking, or let's say he was talking about those um, groups, as well as dealing with the cultural um, uh, uh, Romans and Greeks. So when he he refers to the Romans as um, shepherds and the Greeks as fishermen, He's talking religious symbols. You know, the Christians, it was, he was going to make his disciples fishers of men, and, they, and they, um, he referred to them as shepherds. So even the word pastor is based on the shepherd. And, you know, and that um, discussion of the origin of the Romans and Greeks, it got nothing to do with the actual origin of the Romans and Greeks as a, as tribes or races or whatever you would call them, it's to do with the it's to do with the church, you know. And this is this kind of um, information is, I would say, I, actually, I think the word it's littered in all of the books, yeah, in the sense that it's just about anywhere. So, yeah, and and so that that's a. You're describing something that is a little. I mean, there's levels like that. That that's like a double meaning, where something something is referring to something else, uh, and then there's also allegory, which is a little bit different because allegory feels like a more uh, suggestive or or. Um, a, a painting of a picture that refers to something entirely different, but structurally the same, if you will. Um, and I guess both occur and, you know, particularly for people who aren't as versed in the tales, it might be useful just to speak briefly about how allegory functions here. Why, why the approach to this sort of material, you have to read it allegorically and understand that there's double and triple and quadruple meanings uh, in order to gain any sense of what Gurdjieff is really trying to transmit. Yeah, that's correct. But it, it's a difficult thing for people to appreciate without actually attending a study group and starting to treat the material in a way that will re- reveal that. So we can start basically with the idea that um, 
everything, all cosmoses, which means all living things, are created to the same pattern. Uh, and this is manifest in all of Gurdjieff's writings. Uh, and most people have no idea that this is the case. So, in, in the Gurdjieff and Kondabuffer thing, we talk about the, um, the birth of the moon as a sexual act between um, a sperm and an egg, where the egg is the earth, right? And the, and the sperm is a comet. But this is a sexual um, analogy or allegory. But as soon as you actually go a few pages forward, we're back to treating the earth and the moon on a different scale entirely. It's not about human sexuality. It, it, it's about the production of moons from planets and suns. And there's um, a, a curious, if you like, um, disharmony, intentional inexactitude mainly, but it's a disharmony. It's like the evidence is that, that suns and, and planets, they don't reproduce sexually, they reproduce asexually. Um, and the, uh, the normal, um, as far as the evidence exists, the, the normal situation is that a sun simply becomes overcharged. And in order to... Um, be able to handle the situation of being overcharged. It splits in two, like a, almost like an amoeba, except one part will be much smaller. And, you know, the, the laws of um, electric charge are such that a very large mass, if you design it into two masses, it can, it, its ability to, to take a charge increases. So the 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 births that happen at the level of let's say suns they're, they're novas and supernovas that's what's going on with those uh, and yet that's not so far different from the fact that they discover that the um, that there's a flash of light when the sperm touches the egg and fertilizes it uh, at the lower level you know and there's a so you're, you're stuck with having to juggle different cosmoses. And if you don't take the words as above, so below, as a literal explanation of the universe, then you aren't going to be able to understand this. So it, it, it's not just um, appreciating allegory. It's actually understanding that Gurdjieff in the tales leaps from one level to another level to another level uh, and back in the narrative. So things that appear to be utterly illogical um, are illogical only in a particular cosmos, but in a higher cosmos, they're not illogical, they're kind of sound. Uh, and that's partly what um, Gurdjieff and Kunderbuffer is trying to get people to understand, is you just can't... Um, you have to, in one way or another, start to understand the uh, objective science of the work in some way. 
it's like, you know, we all have this, let's call it an identity crisis. We don't know what we are. It's a simple thing. Um, you're made up of, by and large, depending on the latest estimate, something like 30 trillion cells. And, and you have in your body um, uh, uh, a dependent symbiotic biomass, uh, which also is, seems to have about a similar size. But at one point in time, you were one cell. And, and, and that's an important piece of information. It's a really important piece of information because if you try to estimate the number of suns in uh, a galaxy, the, the number comes out in the region of the number of, um, uh, the number of atoms in a cell. And if you try to, given the current count, try to estimate the number of uh, galaxies in the universe, it's probably more now that James Webb as a telescope has gone crazy, but uh, you discover that the ratio is very similar to the ratio of cells in your body to you. Hmm. Uh, and yet at one point in time you were one cell. And this is a, a, a curious thing, and we think of um, this is our problem. It's uh, it's an intellectual difficulty that we suffer from. Is that we tend to think of cells in a particular way. We think of them as little balls of stuff or little little um, amoebas. They're all little amoebas, except they're just making a part of your body. Well, the the reality is that your life. Um, revolves around the activity of these cells. And bizarrely, you can communicate with them, although you actually have, this is a meditational thing, really. By focusing on sensation, you get to the level of the cells of your body because it, it, you don't really... You know, when you're sensing your body, you don't, you're not really sensing your hand. You're sensing a, a set of cells somewhere, and you're doing it via the um, the nervous system in order to get, let's say, I'm sensing the palm of my hand, you know. I'm sensing at the level of cells. And we have, you know, we think of a cell as an in, invisible thing, but a cell isn't necessarily an invisible thing. For instance, an ostrich egg is one cell. Mm. You know, and, and, and therefore our kind of way of um, trying to simplify everything. If you take the DNA at the center of the cell in your body and unravel it, because it's all raveled up into a straight line, it's about six foot tall. Um, and, and this is stuff we don't appreciate. You know, and, and the, uh, the necessities, I think, with the work is that you, you really have to join together the, um, the psychological side with the objective science side in order to understand what the hell you're dealing with. And 
those things that people don't want to be true have to start to be accepted. Or else you should just walk away, you know, which is the other alternative, just walk away. <clears throat> but, you know, the reality is that from the perspective of the word, the earth is growing and the moon is growing. And the evidence for that is actually really quite strong, as long as you don't depend upon the, uh, let's say, the formatory pronouncements of um, uh, modern science in, in all its... I don't know, it's, it's become really a dogma rather than anything else. One that's really difficult to um, to penetrate. And, and it's like, well, we have to accept that the earth is growing. We have to accept in some way or other, we just have to accept that the moon is growing. And if the moon is growing, then what's happening here? And then we, we see the role of humanity is to provide certain substances to the moon, and it's not an avoidable task. You know, it, it, it's a given task, and you're going to do it whether you want to or not. But there are two ways of doing it, and one of them is to save it all up for when you die, and that what the remnants of your personality at death will be attracted electromagnetically to the moon. And the the remnants of your immune system as well, the immune system energies, they're going there. And then when you say a growth, everyone thinks of the moon as a, a big rock with almost no atmosphere whatsoever, and the atmosphere that's there is accidental. Um and should be boiling off, and that's the way the astronomers, uh, astronomers talk about it. But from the perspective of the work, it's a living being, and therefore it's got a psychology, and therefore it needs, it needs in one way or another to have that part of it fed, and, and the role of nature is, is to feed it. You know, and you know, the, the position of man is that he can choose to feed it consciously if he does that. Uh, he can make a profit from it in his life. But it's still going to happen that when he dies, his personality is going to go to the moon because uh, in the same way that the body goes to dust, that's its destination. But if... Um, if oh, Did you have a question? Well, I was I, I was going to change the subject, but if you, you're going to follow Well, up I just here. wanted to a- ask on that, that the... Um, uh, if we con- if we consciously create a certain kind of substance that is useful for the moon, and presumably we we could understand that as the substance that is cultivated when we pay attention, when we are present in our bodies, uh, present to our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations, and can act and hold a unity in that space that that cultivates a kind of substance that is useful for the moon. So, but yet nonetheless, uh, what personality structure we have still ultimately goes to the moon upon the death of our physical body. But presumably the option for us is that in doing that, a certain something else, uh, may be cultivated that, uh, go somewhere else. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think so. The The thing that needs to be 
You see, Gurdjieff made a number of statements of, uh, about the whole of objective science, and he said objective science, the inner world and the outer world, have to be have to be studied at the same time. Uh, and the consequence of not studying um, objective science, not studying the outer world, is that there are various links in the behaviour of your psychology that you absolutely miss. You've been taught, let's say, red and search and racket, and you're taught that essence consumes personality. It's the act of essence consuming personality that allows you in your life to feed the moon. Hmm. And those two things have to be connected. And, and, and it's like personality is a certain kind of structure at a certain kind of level, which we can call, if you like, hydrogen 24. And if you um, consume your personality, so essence consumes personality, then in that's a law of three thing going on in there. There will be a substance that's created, and that is stuff that you will eject from your body because it's no longer useful, and it will drift up to the ionosphere and eventually get to the moon, and it will do it while you're alive. So let me let me um, follow up on your earlier statement that about the thirty trillion uh, cells in the human body. And 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 the symbiotic um, additional um, materials, living substances in our bodies, because um, the the description of relationships you just offered um, about the substances that uh, go to the moon does not include anything, as far as I could discern, about the symbiotic organisms within the body when it dies. Is there any, does, do, do you detect anything in Gurdjieff's uh, writings that uh, discusses that? I don't know. There's, I mean, it's, it's stuff that I've thought about. So, you know, there is a, a, an octave. It's called the side octave from the sun or the lateral octave from the sun. Mm-hmm. And in that lateral octave, far solar, organic life on Earth, fills the MIFAR interval. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have uh, a ray of creation in yourself in miniature as a, a living cosmos, and you also have a side octave from the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and fossil law in the side octave from your inner sun is organic life on you. Uh, and that is the microbiome. Mm-hmm. It occupies exactly the same role in, ex- in, you know, in relation to um, your inner cosmos as we um, occupy in relation to the, um, uh, the lateral octave that comes from the sun. So there is a correspondence there. Okay. Then you've got um, the other question, which is the origin of life. Of course, nobody really knows the origin of life, and and therefore it is very difficult to say. There are things that... um, uh, that we can say are reasonably well established by 
modern science in examining um, geological traces of life. Uh, and, and we know from the geological traces, as far as we can tell at one point in life, at one point in time, this um, planet only had single cellular life. Mm-hmm. And there's even a, a, a period in time before eukaryotes were formed, according again to the geological record in eukaryotes, right. the things that make it possible for multicellular creatures to occur. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got this whole situation in respect of the Earth that many, many years have to go by, and we are talking about millions and hundreds of millions even years have to go by before you can actually create something as sophisticated as man in order to properly fill the lateral octave from the sun. So there's a period of gestation going on. Uh, And one of the things that's happened is that the only thing that's feeding a moon right now, as far as we know, we we, we don't have sufficient information on the other planets. Um, The only thing that's feeding a moon right now is um, uh, organic life on, on Earth. So that leads us to assume that Earth is actually the womb. Because hmm. it, it, it's the planet within the solar system that has actually created a, um, a, a child that needs to be fed. Now, we don't know about the other planets because we can't take the um, uh, subjective perspective of any of those planets. We know almost nothing about the surface of any of them except for Mars. And Mars appears to be, if you like, uh, a, a, a desert planet, it would be fair to say. Um, but it is very likely, in my opinion, that there are bacteria on all the planets and all the moons. Mm-hmm. I just think it's very likely. Mm. And that there is things that are going on. They just discovered about the, the, an article came out about three or four weeks ago that the Earth is sending water to the moon. Yeah, I saw that. You know, and, and it's like, oh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Um, if that's the case, then one should assume that the other planets are also in some way or other interacting with their moons. Although ours is different. And it, it's, it, there are things that we can, things that we can't particularly know. I think ours is almost the only moon that doesn't live within the magnetosphere of its parent. So it's a child um, that is in some way of it, it's being fed five days a month and somebody pointed out to me the other week that that's about the time that a woman has um, uh, her period experience about five days a month Mm. Uh, and you know I don't know what that means roughly speaking but in in one way there's something going on here that is um, reflecting let's say reality it's if you don't insist on knowing for sure about anything, it's an awful lot easier to deal with this stuff because mm-hmm. we don't 
precisely know all the details. We're just kind of ignorant, really. Well, you're right. I mean, you're describing a way of approaching this material um, that is actually useful. I mean, uh, something you said to me um, on one of our past conversations about how one approaches uh, an indigenous uh, spiritual tradition has resonated with me. And I've uh, quoted you a number of times on this, which is in order to really get something out of a, an indigenous tradition, you have to become passive to it and let it do something to you and receive that without bringing, without force fitting it into your own conceptual structure. And similarly, I think you're describing a way of approaching Gurdjieff's material and objective science in general is you don't have to know everything all at once. You try to hold everything such that connections can emerge and clarity can arise. And that's a very different kind of functioning than the, uh, the I guess, the package that's presented to us by uh, organized uh, science and other bodies of knowledge in, uh, in contemporary society. Because the way we're trained with science Everything is presented like it's a natural deduction from one step to the other. The reality is, of course, that true scientists who come up with innovative thinking often are doing exactly the same thing. They're holding a space and allowing something to happen. But when it gets taught and regurgitated and uh, uh, students uh, uh, have to do Ph.D. studies and things like that, all of a sudden uh, it's much more restricted and I'll just go ahead and no, I'll go. No, I would just completely agree with that. I mean, I think that that's um, uh, the the best way to look at it. This has got to do with formatory mind and, and the fact, um, and I don't include you guys in this, but the fact that most people that you meet, meet don't know how to think. They have no model for thinking. Anybody that's, in my opinion, um, pursued any kind of spiritual tradition that's worth anything at all has at least the possibility of being able to think because they have to be able to hold things in a non-formatory manner for it to have any meaning whatsoever. Well, I think this book, um, uh, Gurdjieff and Kundabuffer, um in its form even has, has, has that quality because I think chapter three is, uh, the book, the chapter on allegory. And I mentioned earlier that, that there's this, a presentation of the narrative inherent in the tales that you s- summarize pretty skillfully in the latter part of the book. But, um, I mean, it's kind of like I, the analogy I was thinking of. It's it's like a uh, a Greek myth because I, I happen to uh, I haven't read read any of his books, but Stephen Fry has apparently done a bunch of books on on Greek myths, and um, and and he finds them to be. I mean, you know, at his uh, where he's writing from, he finds them to be psychologically relevant to to human human beings and 
And it seems to me that um, that's one of the strengths of an allegory, um, that you have to hold more than one thing at the same time in in your uh, capacity to think in order to be able to make connections that have a non-formatory relevance to your life. And I think that's the, that, that, that I'm, that I see in, in, in this book because you're going back and forth, especially in the first part of the book between these, um, uh, ways in which you, um, suggest that scientific data, um, supports this idea that the moon is being fed and other, and other relation and other, um, relations between the earth and the moon as well. And, um, and, and that, um, to me, it's, it's, uh, the, the utility of that is that it's a demonstration, as you were just saying, of how to think, or at least one way to hold something that is not simply mechanical in the capacity to respond intellectually to the, to the world and, and to your, um, experience. So, um, so it's, so it's, it's a, it's a different way, but related to the way that Gurdjieff writes, which is different than the way that most people would write a book like this. Is that, is that a fair, would you agree with that statement? Yeah. And I, I'm just, um, it's impossible to think of myself as anything other than incredibly influenced by Gurdjieff and everything he did. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are, there are many ideas that I never met before Gurdjieff. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can take one of the, one of the ideas, who are the evil people on the, on, in the planet? on the planet. Who are the evil people? And I find this an interesting question. Who is evil? And when people try to think of the most evil people, um, they start thinking of, um, uh, you know, Hitler and Stalin and uh, Nazi Tung and all of these people are responsible for millions and millions of deaths. Mm-hmm. And then you read the tales, and in the tales... He designates certain individuals as house nemesis, which is the worst kind of human being and the greatest kind of criminal you can imagine. And you read what they've done, and none of them ever killed anyone. You know, it's like Lentra Hansen in The Greatest Villain of All wrote an essay on um, on uh, cowhide. <laughs> Right. He wrote an essay which seemed not really particularly. It was it was against the way that the the um, that the society was run at the time. But it, it, it doesn't like it doesn't sound like the um, he's talking to people who are oppressed. And 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 it's like this is an interesting thing to me because before the millions of murders that were perpetrated by these individuals, there were thoughts. 
Hmm. You know, and uh, how is it possible, for example, to um, contemplate and even execute the murder of millions of Jews without an intellectual theory as to why you should do it? Right. You know, these are untermension, or whatever they're called. They're not human beings. In, in fact, how could it even be murder when they're just not actually human beings? It's a it's a slaughter of animals that need to be removed because they're getting in the way and so on, you know. Or if you take the Stalin route where um, he uh, partly responsible, well, completely responsible for the murder of five million people in support of his agrarian policy. And, you know, it's the agrarian policy that leads to all of these deaths, you know. And that, I think, is an interesting thing because Gurdjieff has um, presented this um, in a, a particular way that make, it opens it up for you to ask questions. What is he going on about? Now, are these people really that evil? Uh, and the answer is probably yes, objectively they are. You know, as depicted, entirely evil, every bit as bad as Genghis Khan was in his day and so on. And, I mean, this is... One of the things that I find just completely amazing is that, um, is that in the tales there are... Uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 big ideas that I'd never encountered anywhere else. You know, they're just all. Um, it, it's really interesting that he asks questions, or through Beelzebub, he asks questions for you to try to understand. Yeah, that is a uh, the description of evil as you describe it it is very compelling i mean it makes me you know what was coming up for me about that was the nature of social media today and the way the and and even the the function of propaganda in general which uh is a, a a tool to essentially remove possibilities from a human being and and force that you know basically take advantage of a you might say a weakness in the design of our process of mentation and and uh exploit it such that you control people and in that control that at the it doesn't matter if it leads to murder it, it leads to the cessation of the growth of possibility for a being. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's we can see it in our modern politics. I don't think the modern politics is particularly different than prior politics, except that um, we have different um, fingers pointing at different classes of people than we had before. You know, it, it's like it moves as to who the great evil thing is, but you the 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 thing that um uh, really disturbs me about what's happening at the moment is the uh the the attempt to classify as monsters people who have gender problems of which there are very few 
and right. together yeah. and they're not threatening anybody. And right. they live sad lives because they've got a huge confusion in themselves about their gender and so on and so forth. And it's just like, you know, they're, uh, and that's happening via propaganda because some people in one way or another in the Republican establishment want to have someone to point a finger at because it helps their, um, I don't know, it helps their... Um, what they believe um, will enrage people and somehow get their votes. I have no idea how that works at all, but it's just, it's bizarre because it begins with, let's pick a victim. Right. You know, it's, it's just, it, 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 it's a, a horrible thing, but when you actually go back to the 1930s and look at Hitler, it's not as horrible as Hitler was. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a level of difference, at least at the moment, of course, maybe it could get that horrible. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, he, he, they, they certainly picked their victims then as a way of consolidating power. And uh, I guess it got to another level when that became a theory and people began to uh, put their engineering minds to uh, the practical consequences of that theory. And that's a... Uh, that we're we're never safe from that without uh, attention and and the willingness to be present and witness clearly what what is going on. It's yeah the, the way that I think of it. I'm a, I'm a, um I'm not sure that I'm right, but it doesn't really matter. The way that I think of it is this: it's the intellect without the um, the partnership with the emotionals side mm-hmm. is a monster. And yeah. It's a monster only when it spins out of control and believes it's something because from the power point of view, KGFM point of view, it's merely this servant that drives a carriage. You know, and, and therefore there's no reason to think of it as anything other than um, a, a reasonable and perhaps, if you develop it, very useful function. But if it, it if it um, comes to conclusions without consulting what we we shall call the heart for reason, um, rather than you know refer to the the Gurdjieffian terminology, just the heart. They have to work together, and if they don't work together, then the intellect stands a chance of becoming a monster. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go back uh, to something in the book that has is a question that uh, I've had, uh, particularly around the discussion we were having earlier about the nature of the moon. And in a way, none of this is unrelated to what we were just talking about. But um, uh, the there's two ways in which the I've heard you speak about the moon, and I'm interested in how you hold those two things. One is the conversation we were having earlier in this discussion, which is the moon as a cosmic being is something that organic life feeds, and that part of our function as in organic life, our natural function, our natural obligation is to provide energy for the, the growth of the moon. Uh, but you've also spoken about uh, that there's an inner moon in ourselves. 
and that to have an inner moon, it's important to feed that inner moon. And so I guess I, I, I'm interested in how you understand those uh, two different scales uh, and, and, and what the inner moon in ourselves uh, uh, represents or, or what, what is that inner moon in ourselves that we can feed similarly with intention and conscious efforts. Yeah, and this is out. You could have a very long conversation about this, I think. But the 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 problem that we have, we 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 look at the moon and we think rocky thing out there with almost no atmosphere. It's dead, really. Um, and the the view of the of the work isn't that that's not at all true. Um, and the moon in oneself is the lowest part of the ray of creation within you. And Gurdjieff says you have to create moon in yourself. Well, you already have moon in yourself because you have the substances of moon, which is your bones, um, and other such um, dense um, matter that's part of you. But you see, the moon is a, is is a living creature, and the um, the idea of um, creating moon in yourself is to do that. the The technique for doing that is to sense yourself. Mm. And when you start to think about, oh, what does that mean? Well, it means that at the very least, you're dealing with hydrogen forty eight. Dealing with a substance of a nervous system, uh, and therefore the moon in yourself has got uh, a gradation of hydrogens all the way up to hydrogen 48, and your obligation is to try and feed the moon so that the moon becomes, in one way or another, the, re- the recipient of personality, and personality rises up to the level of the essence, which is at the level of the planets. You know, and at the same time, you're going to have the creation of the body of the soul, which um, rises up from the level of impressions um, to uh, higher hydrogen. So creating moon in oneself in, in some way or other is to acknowledge that there is a note um, that has an existence um, you, you could say, I suppose, the, the one of the things is the law of um, octaves, also referred to as the law of sevenfoldness. The ray of creation within you has got seven pieces and the moon is the lowest piece. You know, which means that there's an earth in you and, and that um, well, almost certainly is my thinking. I mean, you know, I think the earth in you is at the level of muscle. You know, there are some things that unfortunately um, it it starts to become very complicated when you take them, uh, try to take them into account. But have you heard of a guy called Dr. Tennant? No. No. Uh, Well, that's... um, He's gone and done something that I think is quite remarkable, and, and he's not the only person that's done some of this. This is about the electrical nature of the body. Okay. 
And um, he has got, there are a number of things that he has kind of um, uh, concluded, and I think he's right, but I don't know for sure. So one of the things that he says is that all the acupuncture meridians go through your teeth. Through your teeth? Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Um, and there's a, a statement he makes that may, ought to make everybody think twice. Um, he said that um, root canals... Um, you, if you've got any root canals, just have them taken out. And in in terms of um, of that situation, um, they discovered that um, of the people that came to them. So he runs a practice, and he's a qualified doctor, so they can't because he does electric healing with people. They can't shut him down because he's entirely qualified to do whatever healing he likes. Um, but he has to be careful because the FDA doesn't have any respect for anybody. Um, of the people that came to him with cancer, 95% had root canal. <laughs> and the cancer that they had was on the meridian that goes through the tooth that they had a root canal in. That's so interesting. He made a, a, a very strong um, claim there, which um, um, I was willing to believe when he when he started to present the idea of leaving something dead in your body as being a bad idea. Um, that's pretty much. That's, that resonates with me. Why would you leave something dead in your body? If your tooth is unrescuable, then it should be extracted because if you try to build something there, what you have is dead matter in the body. And dead matter in the body, in other parts of the body, if you left it in, it would cause gangrene. You know, so that, that was a kind of an interesting thing, but the thing that he had uh, he'd also come to the conclusion is that the muscles and batteries, and uh, in in one way or another, the um, the way that the acupuncture meridians work involves that too. So, um, and this is just a. I mean, this is just to make the connection with electricity because I'm not interested so, so much in trying to um, talk about what might be um, interesting health information. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in the fact that the body's electric, mm -hmm. and and that the 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 fact that the body's electric is just a. Uh, and uh, an interesting fact. So let me, because I am about to do this, um, let me flip to the um, the universe. Right, and we have the very strong 
um, set of evidence from the Electric Universe people that the galaxies are connected to other galaxies by Birkeland currents. And there are clusters of galaxies, and they're connected to other clusters of galaxies by Birkeland currents. And there's a flow, and the Birkeland currents is always a flow of positive charge towards something that's more negatively charged. And we know from the planet Earth itself that the sun is sending us mostly protons in actual fact. Mm-hmm. They're entering our atmosphere when they don't bounce off the um, uh, the magnetosphere, they enter the poles, and positive charge is arriving on the Earth all of the time. So what's balancing that? So... And this is where I'm going with this, because it, it, it should also apply to the... It should apply to ourselves as well. That the absolute God as we envisage him as a kind of um, um, diffuse, high-energy thing, he is a cathode. And the center of planets and the center of suns and the center of moons, they're anodes. And this is stated without, I would say, um, without making any reference to electricity. He, he, just, he just says the holy firm exists within mm-hmm. planets and moons and, and suns. And the question is, um, it, it seems quite likely to me, because the the body of the absolute at the highest level um, it is capable of em- emanating, uh, issuing positive charge, that the universe is created between the anode and the cathode, and the cathodes are in the planets and in the suns and in the moons. And that that's how the universe works. And that all of that stuff that's coming <clears throat> the Aurora Borealis is being, in one way or another, is being um, balanced by stuff, negative charges being made at the center of the Earth. Well, aren't, aren't you implying also that um, uh, the human cosmoses, as well as these um, other cosmoses, have the same feature. Yeah, and you know the uh, the the and I'm investigating this in my own sweet way, but um, <clears throat> the fact that the body is electric is already for me an interesting thing. But the more that you look at it, the body is a semiconductor. You know, Tennant says that all of the fascia, you know that stuff that wraps around your organs and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. It's all conductive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you actually look how muscles work and actually how the nervous system works, how everything works. And you realize it all depends on um, uh, adenosine triphosphate. One particular 
molecule, which is a really um, versatile molecule because it can hold three negative charges. And that what's happening in the muscles is that these that stuff's getting charged up. And that, you know, the reason that you're eating and uh, digesting and all of that stuff, um, in one way or another, is to maintain the electrical state of your body. And we know, I mean, Tennant's got this in, in, um, uh, in one way or another um, specific measurement that's been done, but we know that if the um, charge around the cell varies, so I think it's 0.50 or something, but I'm not, I'm not really sure, but if it varies in its normal electrical state, it's sick. Mm. You know, and there are various things that are kind of interesting to me because the tenant is advising you to spend your life with electron donors. With electron donors? <laughs> yeah, that's what I do, isn't it? <laughs> so you, if you go out in your bare feet and walk on the earth or grass... Um, it, it gives you electrons. If you go and hug a tree, it will give you electrons. If you go and pet an animal, it will give you electrons. You know, all of those are electron donors. Yeah. You couldn't exist down by the sea when the waves, particularly when the waves are crashing against rocks. Uh, those are electron donors, and that's why you feel healthy in those places and so on. You know, and it's kind of an interesting thing because we have never cared much about our, electro, uh, our electrical environment. Well, let me ask you if, uh, if, uh, if animals can be electron donors, surely human beings can be electron donors as well. Well, in the state, they're the opposite. Don't yeah, okay, yeah. From you, you know. Sure, sure. Um, but if they're, um, let's say that they have, you know how Reiki works, you, you kind of, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, a method of electron um, transfer from one person to another. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that um, a number of people that do that kind of healing that I've talked to, um, have a shower afterwards because that's a good way of getting rid of positive charge of yourself. A shower mm. is an electron donor. Mm. Interesting. It is interesting. Well, you're reminding me, even though it's not directly related, but uh, as I was reading um, Gurdjieff and Kunda Buffer, uh, I was uh, reminded of a, a 1950s Isaac Asimov science fiction novel called The Currents of Space. And in, and in this story, um, it's, uh, it's about a, a planet where, where an elite are um, harvesting the, the work of an underclass in order to, cre- in order to um, make a plant that, has, that can be woven into cloth that has unique properties. No, no other planet in the galaxy can, you know, uh, grow this plant such that it, they, they can grow the plant, but it doesn't have yeah. uh, the properties. Right. 
And so um, what they discover at the end is that the reason that the plant growing on this one um, planet has the these special properties is that its sun is being intersected. It has moved into a current of space. I forget what the composition of the current is, is reputed to be. But that, but that current changes the radiation of the sun such that the plant uh, has these, has these particular properties. And, um, and the resolution of the, of the, uh, uh, unfortunate relationship between the elite and the underclass is that, oh, now we don't have to re- rely on the radiation of this particular sun at this particular time in its history. We can replicate this. Uh, and so they don't, they, you know, in other words, it liberates the uh, underclass. Uh, uh, but I was like, um, you know, you have so much really interesting information about in this book about um, the electromagnetic relationships in the solar system uh, generally. Now you're talking about electromagnetic, electromagnetic relationships within planetary bodies and um, and even non-planetary bodies with this uh, electron donor idea, which um, I, I love the phrase. Yeah. I'm going I'm to have to. <laughs> well, it also it does it does speak to uh, understanding energetic healing. Uh, that's, that that that's true. That's true. That's a feature. There are also things like why do people take. Uh, fruit, particularly grapes and flowers, to the ill. Mm. They're taking electrons. You know, the, the, it's it, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's it's when the the flu, the Spanish flu, which of course didn't come from Spain, <laughs> happened in America in nineteen, I don't know, twenty or twenty one or whatever it was. The people that survived were the ones whose beds were put out into the sun. Mm-hmm. That's already an interesting thing, you know. That that those that you see, they probably were just given a better electron situation than other people were given accidentally <laughs> and almost randomly. Yeah, that's interesting. So I would this be that. a principle for uh, why therapies like radionics might uh, uh, have proved effective? That it's a way of really providing. Um, electron sources yeah i mean i've got loads of stuff now that that does um you know of course i I now gather information didn't used to but i now gather information about anything electrical in in connection with the body but i've got loads of stuff now i've got a blood electrifier i've got um uh a pemf a pulsing electromagnetic field um, device, which is supposed to give you the right um, strength on like uh, electromagnetic fields, and will heal. Um, and they recommend a month or something. But you see, there are certain things that are known to be the case. <coughs> like, for instance, you can clean the blood simply by, I mean, you know, the device I've got is nine volts and um, you just put it on your, the veins on your wrist and it will 
electrify the blood and it will clean the blood of any pathogens in the blood but <clears throat> that's not what you want to clean what you want to clean is the lymph system because it's known that um, viruses and um, uh, bacteria that wishes, wish to hide hide in the lymph system because there's no oxygen there. Mm. And virtually all the pathogens are, are actually anaerobic. Oxygen kills them. And the, in, the immune system, when it sends its white cells around, the way they kill pathogens is that they pass them um, uh, hydrochlorous acid, which is a, a, it's one molecule. It gives them a charged oxygen atom and it kills them. And pathogens uh, um, uh, can't handle oxygen. Anyway, I'm treating my immune system, I'm treating my lymph nerves um, with electric pulses every day. Not in any, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, so there, there's um, very, li- very difficult for me to know if I'm doing anything um, dramatically um, for my own health or not. It's possible that what I'm doing doesn't matter at all because I never had much, you know, pathogen stuff in me. Um, it's, it, it, so it's impossible to know. Um, but I have um, forged a little partnership with someone who's a nurse and I'm going to try and get her um, to start treating herself. And she's got a, a few issues, but not many. Um, and, and just try and learn uh, all of this stuff. It's well, not that one's wanting to treat anyone. It, it's that I'm actually after finding out about the electric body. Right. Well, that one of the things you said earlier would imply that a nurse might be a, partic- a person with an occupation that particularly would need supplementation of electrons, as you were saying. Yeah, because... it's kind of an interesting thing is what do these, you know, um, what's your electric state when you're drunk? Hmm. I have no idea, personally, but th- those are things that I regard as um, important questions. You know, I didn't regard as important questions until I started to look at at this. And this is, you know, let's look at the the various um, monuments across the earth. Are you talking about the the pyramids or whatever? Are, Are they standing on electrical sources? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just, I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, so one of the most ancient, um, it's been called, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, one of the earliest temples is this site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. Oh, yeah, I know that. And, and, um, and what people would do would be to, uh, as I understand it, excavate, create a, as if an altar, uh, columns or or other uh, stone things with uh, with various 
you know, representations of animals on them. And then they bury them after, you know, apparently they'd have a, they'd have a big, um, a big party and then they'd bury these things. Now it's probably a lot more complicated than that. Oh, I'm sure but, it is. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the idea that, that, um, that they're creating these things and then leaving them in the earth, um, makes me wonder if there wasn't something particular about these spots where where that site and other similar sites at uh, you know in the general vicinity didn't have some particular property that people were aware of and could tune into I read a book this is a long time ago I read a book probably back in the 1980s or something called the pattern of the past by guy underwood um and a few associated books, I'm not sure which I'm quoting, but I remember one of the things was that it was a dowser. Mm-hmm. It had a way of dowsing, and what he was doing, he was going around the old stone circles, and he was discovering that they were all, in one way or another, over what he called blind springs, which is springs under the ground, but they're electron donors. And... Mm. Um, he went into churches, and one of the things that happened when the church, Christian church, came into the UK, into England, is that in places where there were stone circles, they they built the church over the site of the stone circles, mm. um, and I'll possibly used the stone in order to do it. So a number of sites, you could say, were destroyed in that way. But one of the things that this guy recognized when he went into loads, there's loads of old churches in the UK dating back, you know, to, I don't know, 1200, 1100, whatever, because, you know, the UK has just been around forever. And he said it, it was odd. He walked into church and he noticed that the font is often in a different place in a different church. Hmm. So he he went and doused it, and he said the font. They always place the font over a blind spring. They knew. Hmm. And, and and now you've got this idea of you're baptizing a relatively newborn child, and you're giving it electrons. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, we we had a a, a friend uh, that recently performed a baptism for, you know, he's an older man. He performed a baptism for uh, the daughter his friend's him. daughter. Yeah. And they did it uh, uh, in Maui in the ocean. So that, now that that's probably a good source of uh, electrons. <laughs> that would be probably the case, yeah. It's that's it. So, um, you know, we've, we've talked uh, uh about food, and we've talked about the moon, and we've talked about Gurdjieff. We haven't quite talked about Kundabuffer yet, so we probably, uh, you know, for the purposes of the book, should uh, come back to that topic um, and see how that weaves into this uh, extended discussion. Uh, You know, Kundabuffer is something that figures prominently in all and everything as a explanatory cause for some of the issues that uh, contemporary human beings experience. And um, 
in some ways it reads as an allegory, in some ways it reads as a literal, you know, functional or physiological truth. So I'm wondering if you could start with the, just reminding listeners of the original allegory of the implantation of the organ Kundabuffer. And maybe let's talk about why would that be necessary for uh, evolving human beings at that time? Oh, actually, that's kind of beyond my pay grade as a question because <laughs> something in one way or another has determined that it is necessary for... And it, it, one of the things that it, as soon as you actually get into this, you start to have to take a look at the nature of um, uh, of the embryo and the fetus. And it's it, it's just something that you have to do, you know. So, first of all, Gurdjieff states, without any um, uh, ambiguity, that that Kundabuff was injected when men had tails, and the only time men had tails was uh, I think the first week two or three in the womb. <laughs> so that's when it was in, in, injected. But at that point in time, there is. I mean, there still is, if you look at um, the bottom of the um, spine, there's something that looks like a horse's tail and um, is referred to as a horse's tail, I think, cord or something or other. Um, in the place where um, Gurdjie suggested that bon, uh, Kundabuffer was in, uh, introjected, is the term he uses. Um, is that the- how you do that if you like I don't know what kind of um, uh, action that implies is it a virus is it a piece of gene splicing or something I don't know what's going on they they put um, the tail. Um, they, they put condor buffer in there and then they remove it. So so well, I I guess the one of the things that struck me about the description of condor buffer when I would read it as a a allegory about humans, you know, with tails uh, running around the earth, which is different than what we're talking about, is that um, the the description is that it was put there because if human beings understood the true nature of their functioning, which was to be a conduit for energy to feed the moon, that uh, humans by their nature would either go insane or rebel against this kind of forced servitude and uh, effectively uh, uh, choose to die rather than to function organically. And so the Kunda buffer was inserted as a way to turn the world upside down. So uh, what what presumably what is big becomes small and what is small becomes big. Or what is up becomes yeah, down and right. down becomes up. And uh, the way I've always understood that was 
as an allegory for how we come to take our sensory data and the and the conceptual constructions around that as the as reality versus something larger uh, uh, that's more being related. But in a way, the way you're describing it uh, suggests to me that uh, in order for a higher being to actually join into a physical organism and to become effectively born, it's necessary to effectively uh, turn off a certain kind of functioning such that you can, as it were, go to sleep within the organism and wake up within the organism. Yeah, there's an awful lot of uncertainty here because as soon as you... I mean, one of the things is um, there's a time during... uh, There's a time at which the nervous system develops and it's very late in pregnancy. It's only 25, 26, 27 weeks, you know. And all of the... um, all of the uh, heart-rending suggestions by those people who are um, against abortions it suggests that the that 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 particular um, embryo can feel pain, and it can't. It doesn't have the mechanism for feeling pain. It's an interesting thing, in a way. It doesn't make it more justifiable to actually abort a fetus than than not, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Nowadays, nobody seems to be interested in data. (laughs) Looking at it, and and, and don't don't bring data to a gunfight. That's that's not the Star Trek data, I assume. Yeah, Yeah. 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 the Star Trek data. So, you know, so there's, there's this um, question. So um, there's a question as to um, there's a question as to what you are at the point of conception. It's a question, and it's not a question that you have an answer to. Um, and unless you've got an, an extraordinary unique memory when you can measure back, uh, remember back to that time, you you have no idea what you are at conception. So the idea of implanting condor buffer in you to stop you behaving in a particular way um, implies that you know stuff. It's like, you know, condomorphism, they're not going to agree to do this unless we hypnotize them into believing that it's, um, uh, that everything's okay and um, uh, you're going to be born into the best of all possible worlds or whatever, you know. The, The suggestion is that we already know. And, you know, my experience is this, is that I don't know anything that happened to me in the womb, and I've got no recollection of it. If anything happened to me prior to uh, the womb, uh, if, I, if I existed in some way or other prior to that conception, I've got no idea about it. 
but they're just suggesting that that we come with some knowledge and it needs to be blotted out. Um, the, the, you see, one of the things that one needs to understand, I think, um, is that um, Gurdjieff doesn't answer questions for you. He creates questions for you to contemplate yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the, the, the question is creating... <clears throat> creating here is that we are infinitesimally small compared to something as large as a planet or a moon. And and the the question um, that uh, naturally seems to arise in, in us is that we can have no... If I didn't have this, the statement as above, so below, I would have nothing to say about the moon or the earth. There isn't anything to say about them. Nothing you can say about them at all. I don't know what they are. They are way bigger than me. There are <laughs> seven billion and, and change people on the planet. Um, and I'm just one of them. And, um, if somebody advances a theory that we're feeding the moon or something like that, it's not meaningful. It's not meaningful until you can write it to your own psyche. So, I mean, we we can't really do this without in some way or other. I mean, if you look at the list of the um, consequences of the properties of the organ cumbent buffer, they're completely... Pretty much all the seven deadly sins are there. You know, so so the question is, are we born with sin? Well, What's if it, well, I, I would say that, yeah, we're born based off of that a statement. You'd have to conclude that because of the presence of this... Uh, uh, Whatever this factor is, this kunda buffer that blocks knowledge of a larger context of ourselves, we come into this world highly identified with our bodies, and consequently are, uh, let us say, prone to vanity, self-love, um, uh, and yes. and all of these things because that's where our our attention is fixed, and as we develop, we uh, accumulate a personality and there our attention is fixed there as well. So it certainly stands to reason. All of which is true. There's something that needs to be um, acknowledged. It made a big difference to me, and this was perhaps only in the past six months when I kind of stumbled across this in Gina Saltzman's writings. She started to talk of the centers, and we're talking about the lower centers, the lower emotional center and the moving center and the um, uh, intellectual center. She started to talk of those functions. And that became, for me, a really important 
um, way of looking at things. It, it, um, we um, have thought, uh, thought, and we express ourselves, and we do things. And the reality um, of all of that is that we identify with all of those things and think it's us. But you don't, as far as I know anyway, you don't identify with your liver or your spleen or your kidneys or anything. Because they're functions. Mm. You know, and you can read about, you, you know, what those things do. You know, and you can be in one way or another completely amazed that you've got these extraordinary um, uh, mechanisms in yourself that are so incredibly precise and do so many things, right? And as soon as you start to look at your intellect and your emotional side and your moving center as functions, your perception of yourself changes. I mean, it just does. It takes a while, I think, but it just does. Because, you know, you've thought of yourself, you've taken your identity from various of your manifestations. And it might be that some of the manifestations weren't entirely personality. Maybe some of them were um, essential rather than personality. You've taken your identity from these things and the questions. Why? Why, indeed. Why have you taken your identity from these things? And, and well, well, I guess I was thinking that, you know, some uh, theories of biological life suggest that, you know, for an organism to be an organism, it has to have a self-model. And a self-model essentially means a representation of itself in relationship to its environment. And even and the self model doesn't have to be cognitively accessible, but it's it's still a function because a a self model basically means even a bacterium will respond to environmental conditions, but it's not responding to environmental conditions. It's responding to some sort of representation within itself of those environmental conditions, and so there's already a model of itself in relationship to an environment. And so we all, for biological life to function, we have to have a self-model. And so the function makes sense. We have a self-model. The uh, trap of the organ Kunda buffer, it would seem, would be that it's all too easy. It's not necessary, but it's all too easy, particularly if we are raised in abnormal conditions of contemporary human beings. It's all too easy to mistake the self-model for reality and not to see it, as you say, as a function, a function that allows you to negotiate this world. But if we forget that it's a function and take it to be the truth, then things like vanity and uh, the excesses of, of, uh, of egoism necessarily follow. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's, um, the, the thing is this, if, if you take, um, or a thing is this, one perspective on this, is that the immune system, not the immune system, um, the instinctive center is a genius. 
And and you, it doesn't matter whether you're a mollusk or um, a, a, a newborn anything, newborn koala bear. Or, um, the instinctive center knows how to be the function you are. And that's why life is possible for all of these creatures that live in one way or another within the ecosystems of the world. They have within them a genius. And, I mean, some of the things that, um, I mean, you know, some of the things that happen out there, you know, that are just, there's lots of questions as to why um, certain behavior patterns in certain animals um, the um, there's a, uh, I'm just trying to think of various examples but there's this particular creature that um, exists as a single cellular animal um, it's an animal because it can move. Um, although I'm not sure whether it would, uh, I'm not sure what it eats. So I'm not sure it's got any photosynthesis. It doesn't really matter as regards this. It's, its life cycle goes as follows. It enters a particular area and reproduces um, quite happily by mitosis. And then at a particular point in time, its environment becomes crowded and it bunches itself together and makes a stalk. And at the top of the stalk, some of these cells form what are like um, dandelion seed parachute type things. And as the breeze comes in, it blows them away into another area. Hmm. And when sufficient of them have moved out, it dissolves and they become single cellular again. And the question is, where's the intelligence that does that? You know, and, and it's just a, a, a completely, it's one of many, many completely surprising things, you know. You've got the, um, the yucca plant and the yucca moth. They're really, it's a particular species, I think, of yucca plant, and it's certainly a specific species of, uh, species of moth. They can't live without each other. If the yucca moth dies out, then the yucca plant dies out. The yucca plant dies out, and so does the yucca moth. So why does that happen? Why would anything do that? And, I mean, there's lots of good questions around this. That are yeah. things like, you know, you go down into you go scuba diving and you and, and you're hanging around one of these coral reefs it's just it's it's a it, it's an incredibly beautiful colorful environment in many cases and the question is why was it was it waiting for mankind to eventually in, invent scuba equipment so it could go down and look at it <laughs> you know, what's it doing it, I mean, and all of these questions are 
um, they're only really answered by trogoto egocratic considerations. It's not the it's not the individual. Um, it it's the ecosystem that evolves. Well, that's that that get, comes back to your bi- microbiome. Yeah, and my question, my question about that. Yeah, it, it, the I mean, we know it's the ecosystem that involves. Although you don't want to tell any scientists that because they're still stuck on Darwin. That it's like you know they never got out of the, you know never got out of kindergarten. Really, they just heard a few things and they stuck with it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 the exact. There are, I mean, we see this in cosmological science. There's there's a few good ideas that can explain certain things, and then you run with it and try to use it to explain everything. And and that's typically the uh, uh, where science goes awry. Yeah, and I mean, it, it needs to be understood by everybody in the work. It needs to be understood that the data of modern science is interesting and its theories are irrelevant and shouldn't be touched or even thought about. But the data is really very interesting because they find out certain things in certain environments, certain things happen. Uh, and, and that's very useful data, and it helps us understand things. But, you know, the, the, the fundamental of cosmology, which is based upon... Um, I'm, just, I'm talking about Big Bang thinking, but it, it's based upon a godless universe. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as you postulate the idea of God and everything below, um, you can't extrapolate back even a year because, you know, you're saying, oh, that um, galaxy over there must have moved in this direction to get where it is. And, And the answer is, well, what if it didn't want to and chose another direction? You know, and and that that question can't be asked in modern science because the 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 idea is it couldn't possibly want anything. It's all a bunch of um, uh, dead matter. Although, of course, it's the most energetic matter that scientists ever set their hands on. You know, set their eyes on. <laughs> but in in um, so the the idea of trying to reconcile modern science with the work is just a complete waste of time. There's not um, there's not any possibility of reconciling because they start from completely different places. And having started from there they go off in completely different directions. It's not gonna happen. Right. But it is it is possible to use scientific principles of uh looking at data, doing experiments, drawing conclusions as an ally in the work. The challenge with institutional science is that uh, 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 some of the uh, negative factors of the uh, consequences of the organ buffer get in the way of uh, perhaps holding the space we were talking about earlier, of holding the space without having to draw conclusions. Are always reminding yourself. Well, to the, make to to choose between alternative yeah. theories or answers, right? Or but not to be so arrogant as to think that your answer is is the right answer and everything else be damned. 
uh, a little more humility in the practice of science is probably a, a useful ally. Yeah, I'm completely in agreement with that. When, when you talk about the scientific method, we, we have to see it in a context from the perspective of the work that's different to the context of the perspective of um, uh, modern science. Because we accept as valid um, subjective experience within ourselves. And that's one of the reasons that we have to hold things lightly, just in case in some way or other we were deluded in our observation or we misinterpreted or, or so on and so forth. So we've got to hold it very lightly. Yeah. But we, we are in the situation where we aren't inventing anything new. We aren't inventing any new theories. We are given a set of information that we're trying to validate within our life and in the outside world. So it doesn't matter if in, I don't know, 10 years' time, science comes up with some new, to a lot of people, compelling theory about anything. Um, because it, it's, that's not a meaningful event for us, because the only way that we can ascertain truth is um, through the direction of accepting objective science and trying to prove it. And if we proved it wrong, that would be very useful too. You know, because it, it, it is the case that we don't necessarily know that it's been properly um, documented what was said, and maybe there are some ideas that are not quite, um, not quite correct. So we have to, you know, allow that possibility. Well, we have uh, run our course of uh, this particular cycle of time. but it's always a pleasure to uh uh check in with you and and uh you are a unique thinker in the work and it's a it's always a pleasure to have an extended conversation with you because it goes in so many different directions so um we we look forward to further conversations because uh clearly it sounds like you're pretty busy you're pretty busy and there's going to be more more and we'll uh, when we post the podcast, we'll of course have a link to your work so that people can find out more about some of the classes, online classes that you're uh, holding. And we're making our way through some of the uh, products of your editorial work, like uh, uh, Terry Atona's, uh book on Rodney oh, yeah. Cullen. It's very, yeah, it's very interesting, and uh, it, uh, we're we'll, we will have him on the show before too long. We just checked in with him recently. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. He's such an intelligent man. Yeah. He's one of those people that I am so pleased that I met. Yeah. Really is an excellent individual. So, All right. thank you guys. It's always great to talk to you. And it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the conversation goes in every direction, not just because of me. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positive. Thank, thanks for telling me we're, I'm spinning in many directions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor, author of Gurdjieff and Kundabuffer, Food for the Moon. Robin has written or edited nine books about the Gurdjieff work, including... 
the To Fathom the Gist series and Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume 1, The Ray of Creation. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.